Take your Bibles, turn to John chapter 14. We're continuing in our study through the Gospel of John. One of the fundamental realities of the believer is that a Christian is not immune from trouble. Would you agree with that? Uh, There is a misnomer, a myth sometimes that uh, people have that when you give your life to Christ, cross the line of faith, receiving Jesus as Lord, your Savior, then everything is just smooth sailing. Sometimes it seems that when you do become a follower of Jesus and walk for a small moment or a season, it almost seems like you've inherited more troubles. Have you found that to be the case? And you think, wait a minute, this wasn't what the salesman told me on that Sunday morning, right? But we live in a world of conflict. As spiritual children of God... We live in a world that is in conflict with the kingdom of God, don't we? And so when we change allegiances and begin to walk in a kingdom mindset where the kingdom, the way up is to go down. The way to get is to give. I mean, the kingdom principles are so opposite of the kingdom of this world. And so troubles is part of life. It doesn't matter whether you're a believer, an unbeliever, Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, it doesn't matter. Trouble is a part of our life. Well, it's trouble that Jesus addresses in John 14 And in John chapter 14, he begins by addressing, talking his disciples, words of comfort, to give them some comfort, because uh, Jesus is probably within maybe 48 hours or so, or less, between being arrested or really being crucified. And so in the timeline that John has, if you match it up with the other Gospels, remember, John is more of a... PowerPoint presentation of the life of Jesus. He's giving pictures to drive home a particular theme that he tells us in chapter 20, verse 31. He's writing these things so that you may believe, and that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and that by believing in his name, you would have life. John has an intent and selective history in furthering his goal of what he's writing here. That's different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They kind of follow more of uh, if John is a PowerPoint presentation, then Matthew, Mark, and Luke are more of a video. They follow more of a timeline in some respects. And so here we are in chapter 14, and Jesus is with his disciples. They know, to some degree, they still haven't got their head wrapped around it yet, but Jesus certainly knows that in a very short time, he's going to be arrested Uh, put on trial, crucified, and put to death. 
And previously in chapter 13, where we looked uh, last week and previous, Jesus began to tell them some things that began to bring disturbances. He began to talk about how he was going to die, that he was going to leave them. And if that wasn't upsetting enough, he said, oh, and by the way, one of you is a crook. One of you is going to betray me. Now think about the disciples at this point. They've given three and a half years of their lives. They've walked away from businesses. They've been following Jesus during this three and a half years. Um, you know, they're struggling many times in their concept because the common concept of the Messiah in that culture, in that day of Judaism, was that the idea of a suffering Messiah that would be put to death, um, that just didn't jive with what they had been taught. Now, that's certainly what Scripture teaches, but their tradition had moved in a trajectory where they saw the Messiah more as a political uh, leader who was going to overthrow Rome and return Israel back to the glory of King David and was going to reestablish the glories of David and the Davidic throne. And so the idea that this Messiah would lay down his life and give of his life and be crucified, or not even be killed, was just a foreign concept to them, okay? It was just a foreign idea. They couldn't grasp it. And so Jesus is, here he is, uh, days, hours before he is going to be arrested, and he's wanting to bring them some comfort. He's wanting to bring them some uh, semblance of, of peace uh, imagine again, you've left everything that you've known, you're following this guy. Imagine leaving everything that you've known and you've staked your entire future and life. And even though Jesus has given you bits and pieces, that's you're still struggling because you've bought into this concept of Jesus. And now he's saying, and here we are at the crux, and he's saying, and boys... Um, they're going to, I'm going to die, and uh, one of you is going to betray me. So imagine how that rocked their world and thinking, what are you talking about dying? And what are you talking about? One of, them, one of us, the 12, is going to betray you? Is going to sell you out? I mean, everything in that, those moments was, was crashing around their feet. And so Jesus... In chapter 14, he's going to give them some words of comfort. And just, we're not going to read uh, everything that we'll kind of highlight, but I just want us to look at chapter 14, verses 1 through 6, and read that together. It'll be on the screen, and hope you brought your Bibles. You can turn a page or swipe or however you do it. Jesus says, Let not your heart be troubled. Now, again, don't pay attention to chapters and verses. Those were put in later because just keep in mind the flow of what had just taken place. Peter's confused back up in 1336. He wants to go where Jesus is going, and Jesus says, you, <laughs> you can't go where I'm going. Um, and so he says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. 
And where I go, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the living word today, God, and hearing your voice in the pages of Scripture, that your Holy Spirit takes your word, applies it into our hearts and our minds, that this is a living book from a living Savior. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be that which is pleasing and acceptable in your sight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. The title this morning is Strong Words for Troubled Disciples. Now, don't raise your hand, but I think we have some troubled disciples, things that you're anxious about, things that you're worried about. Prayed with some of you this morning, things that are troubling you. That may be short-term things, that may be long-term things, but we have troubled disciples at any one time here in this congregation. And what's interesting is that instead of Jesus focusing on his own suffering, like I would, guys, hey, can I get your attention? I'm going to die. I mean, that would be kind of the way I would pep talk him, right? That wouldn't do it. What, Jesus is focused not on his own inevitable death and suffering, but what does he do? As a good shepherd, what does he do? He is concerned about his followers. He's concerned about his disciples when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. He wants to strengthen them and assure them to be at peace, to know some important truths. Now, this is exhaustive of what Jesus shares, but it's important to draw out three principles this morning in John 14, verses 1 through 14. And if you have a listener's guide, you can follow along and be engaged in Scripture and certainly be, keep you from daydreaming of uh, what they're serving at the Cracker Barrel this morning. But uh, be more engaged with Scripture. You've made the investment of coming here. Don't just sit there and daydream. Sit and engage with the Word of the Lord. God may just speak to your hearts if you give Him opportunity. So take the effort and make time, not to humor me, but this is to serve you as a way to shepherd and pastor you to be engaged in Scripture. But I want you to notice three important ways that I believe Jesus wants to give them strength, some strong words for these troubled disciples, three principles. Notice first is the principles of what we need is we need to be strengthened in where your faith has landed. As we walk through troubling times, we need to be strengthened in where our faith has landed. In verse 1, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. And he says, believe in God. Now, okay, and believe in me. Okay, and, I mean, it'd be like, you know, you're coming to somebody for counseling And you're saying, I'm really troubled. Can you help me? Believe in God. (laughs) 
Oh, and yeah, believe, believe in Jesus as son. He's God. And? Now again, that should strike you as profoundly simple. And yet it is pregnant with all the truth that we need. Isn't it? Because our, our struggle isn't in data, information. Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. To some degree, that's a choice that we make. You realize that in many ways, we oftentimes work ourselves up into a troubled frenzy over issues. And I don't want to trivialize because there's a lot of things that you guys face that are tough, that are hard, that, it, that you know, I stand here in one perspective and you stand in, in a different perspective and I'm not in any way minimizing, but I can be really good about manufacturing a crisis in my head. Can you do that? Are you good at that? And then you find out that when you find out something, the real information, you're like, huh, that wasn't anything like I'd imagined. But in my brain, the doctor calls you and said, hey, um, you know, I got your tests back. I had some tests this week. And so in my brain, I'm like, I had to change the appointment to evaluate it and this, that, and the other. And so in my brain all week, in the back of my head, I was like, he's going to call me. He saw something. He saw something. I know he saw something. Well, he hadn't seen nothing, all right? Now, it wasn't a brain scan. We know there's nothing there. I'm talking about other places in my body. But, uh, but we can work ourselves up into a frenzy. I remember in uh, younger days of life and ministry, if one of the uh, people on the board or somebody called me out of the blue and said, Pastor, I, wanna, I, I need to meet with you. I would get nauseous. And I would start thinking, what have I done? You know, back in the day when there was a blockbuster. How many of you remember blockbuster? You actually rented movie. You know, it's a foreign concept. But I'm thinking, did they see me get an R-rated movie in blockbuster? I mean, I'm thinking of every scenario, and usually it's something, and this just shows you how self-focused we can be. It didn't have nothing to do with me. But I worked myself up two days and just, and we can do that, can't we? Jesus says, don't let your heart be, be troubled. And believe isn't just an intellectual assent to information, believe, and I appreciate uh, Jim's teaching and transformation because Jim is the one that really got me to get in the habit of doing this, is that when you see believe, when you talk about believe, is believe, really just take the word and put trust in there. Let not your heart be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. Trust is that I'm putting my confidence, and it's almost Jesus saying, look, do you trust me? Do you trust God? Do you trust me? Case closed. 
End of issue. But that's where we struggle, isn't it? Is in areas of trust. You see, trust, belief, trust, is something we have to appropriate. Remember just back, if you look in your Bibles, I'm not sure if I'd, it's be on the screen, in John 4, uh, with the woman at the well. Yeah, it's on the screen. And remember in that dialogue, Jesus uh, was talking to her about water, natural water. But Jesus said to her, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. He's saying that water that was in the well that she came for, that they were both there around that well. But he says in, in verse 14, whoever drinks of that natural, but he said, whoever drinks of the water that I shall give them will never thirst. Now his water doesn't do you any good to just know, like natural water, I'm dying of thirst, and there is a nice container of whatever it is, bottled water there on the counter. It doesn't do me any good. I've got to take the cap off. I've got to appropriate. I've got to drink of that living water. Well, that's what often we have to do when it concerns trust and belief. Am I appropriating the truth of God into my life? Am I drinking of the water? You see, Jesus said in John 3.36, talking about belief, he who believes the Son has eternal life. Whoever trusts in Christ has eternal life. That's not automatic. That's something you appropriate, you apply. And so Jesus said in John 14, he says, do not be troubled, trust God. And the reason I said the, the point of this where I said be strengthened in where your faith is landed because that is essential key that if your faith is not landed in a trust of who God is, Christ, if your faith is not landed somewhere, you're just flittering and flying here and there, and you never land on any foundation. There's a lot of people that know Christ or claim to know Christ, and they're always in a perpetual tailspin of life and circumstances. One minute they're just going to abandon God. He doesn't love me. I mean, everything. They've never landed and saying, I am going to land. I may not know everything that God knows and never will, but I trust God. I'm going to land. I'm going to land on that truth. And knowing the character of God, a lot of times people ask, Love to ask pastors and think that we have this all omniscient knowledge of unanswered questions. And I learned a long time ago, it's okay to say, I don't know. I don't know. We don't like to hear that. I don't know. You don't want to hear that from your doctor. Doctor, what is this? I don't know. That ain't, I don't want to hear that from him. Make something up, right? But there's a lot of things about, you've heard me say this before. There's a lot of things about God's ways I don't know. And the older I get, sometimes I can't cross every T and dot every I. But I do know this. I know that God is a God of love. That He's holy. He's righteous. He works all things together for good to those that love Him and are called according to His purpose. That He knew me before the foundations of the world were ever laid. That He has a purpose for me here. He has a future for my life. There's a lot of things I know, and based on what I do know, 
that counterweights over here. What I do know about God offsets and gives me the confidence that I can believe God and I can trust Him. That I may not know, I, you know, I may not know the future, but I know He is already in the future. And if my Psalm 139 says that my days are written out before there were any, guess what? He knows everything. He knows everything. I can trust God. I love the st- little story of a little boy that was on a plane, and one day the plane was, if you've ever been on a plane with a lot of turbulence, the plane was going up and down and all over the place, and the lady sitting next to the little boy was scared and terrified, and she couldn't understand why this little boy was laughing and playing and seemed to be immune to the trouble. And finally, her nerves, you can imagine how nerving that would be, right? And finally, she kind of scolded and said, will you just stop? Will you stop having so much fun? You know, she's probably one to say, don't you know we're going to die? You know, but she didn't say that. He said, how can you have fun when the plane is going through like this? And the little boy put his hands on her hand. He said, it's okay, because I know the pilot is my daddy. You see, when you know that the pilot is your heavenly father, you can have absolute trust and confidence that how that thing is rocking and rolling up and down, you can say, it's okay. I know the pilot is my dad, and I have confidence in him. Notice, secondly, talking about strong words, be strengthened in where your future is located. This is some good stuff. Don't miss this. It's familiar. Passage oftentimes we read and talk about at, at funerals. Thankfully, we're not doing a funeral here today. I hope not. We still got time, but we don't want to do that. But Jesus is talking about the future. Jesus is talking about the future. I can be strengthened in knowing where my future is located. Where is your future located? You know, we talk about heaven in verses 2 through 6. We're going to break this down a little bit. But when we talk about heaven, and this is one of those great passages that give us some, some insights, that when you study the Bible about heaven, and by the way, and you've heard me recommend this many times, uh, one of the best books on the study of heaven that's a biblical book that isn't just based upon near-death experiences and those type of things, but is biblically based and really gives a good, robust understanding of so many aspects of heaven, is the book called Heaven by Randy Alcorn. Some of you have bought that because I've recommended that many times, Randy Alcorn. But one thing we do know, and we can think about heaven, is the things that are there and the things that aren't there. The things that are absent, uh, the Bible says there's not going to be any tears, there's not going to be any sorrow, there's not going to be any death. There's not going to be any disease, there's not going to be any pain, there won't be any sin, there won't be any ungodly people there. The curse of Adam's sin will be gone, it won't be present, it won't have to deal with that, it will be a place of joy and peace. And, and so those are the things that won't be there, but the things that will be there that are present is the saints, we're saints by not because we've gone through a certain ecclesiastical uh, process, but we're saints because of 
what Jesus has done. The Bible calls us saints. Uh, there's a river of the water of life that the Bible pictures there, the Lamb of God, Jesus. There's going to be worship. There's going to be peace. There's going to be uh, that eternal joy of knowing and seeing God with unveiled faces, seeing Him face to face, without having to deal with the sin and the strife and the heartache. Heaven is, is, a, wonderful, is a wonderful truth. And Jesus gives us some, some teaching on heaven. And, and listen, listen to things that the Bible teaches about heaven, not, not near-death experiences where they're seeing unicorns and all sorts of stuff up there, like some of the tourist, heaven tourist books do. But get your facts from Scripture, and there's some insights here. It's not exhaustive. You need to compare Scripture with Scripture, but there's several things that Jesus teaches and gives us insight where we can be strengthened Today, knowing where my future is located, knowing where my future residence, where my future life is. Notice some things. Heaven, in verse 2, is a promise made by Jesus. Jesus said in verse 2, In my Father's house are many mansions. Mansions is an unfortunate translation from the King James um, it really just speaks about dwelling places or rooms. You know, we've built old entire gospel songs on mansions. That's really not the, the correct word there in the uh, original. But Jesus is saying there's many dwelling places, there's many rooms. He said, if it were not so, I, I would have told you. Jesus doesn't lie. Heaven is a promise made by Jesus, and we can have confidence in the promise made by Jesus. Notice that heaven is an actual place. It's an actual place. Plant City is an actual place. Tallahassee is a place. Washington, D.C. is a place. My house is a place. It's an actual, it's not just some, you know, metaphor for some death of where we're just going to kind of have this disembodied spirit floating around and the ether or whatever it is and whatever that looks like. Jesus said, what does he say? He said, in my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a what? Place. And he said in verse 3, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you. The Bible has a lot to say about the place of heaven. It speaks of heaven as a kingdom. And there's lots of things you can look up and, and have a, an understanding of the picture of heaven. But notice also heaven is not only a place, but it's a place being prepared for believers. He said, if I go, and if I go, and remember he's speaking about his upcoming death and departure where he's going to return back as the Son to the Father. But he also speaks of his coming. He said, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. He said, I will come again. I will return. And I will receive you to myself, that where I am there you may be also. What a wonderful picture that heaven is being prepared 
for believers. Jesus is speaking about His second coming. The Bible has a lot to say about the second coming of Christ. In fact, Jesus spoke about His second coming in Matthew 24. Let me read you just a few verses from Matthew 24, verse 29 through 31. And Jesus, in a great chapter on on, uh, His second coming and the events surrounding His return and the world prior to His coming, Jesus said, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. I don't think that's happened yet. At least I haven't been around. Hello? Then the sign. Notice then. Then what? Go back to verse 29. This isn't about end times, but go back to 29. Go back to the previous verse. That when all those things happen, those things have not happened yet. Verse 30. Then. Then. The sign of the Son of Man will what? Appear in heaven. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Jesus spoke very plainly about His return. Paul had this understanding and it was very much a part of the New Testament teaching in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We studied this out. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 13. Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren and sistern, Uh, concerning those who have fallen asleep. Fallen asleep is just a euphemism for death. It's not teaching soul sleep as Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists teach, that it's it's just a term that used for death. It's a tasteful term speaking of death. I don't want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. The implication is because you have hope. Verse 14. For if we believe, if we trust that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with Him those who have previously died in Jesus. Speaking about His second coming. Just keep going through the verse. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord. In other words, He's saying, I'm not just making this up. I'm saying this to you as an apostle, the very word of the Lord, that we who are alive. You see, that church was concerned that they had missed the second coming. And he's telling them that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. All I want you to see is in these two verses that the teaching of Jesus' second coming is layered all throughout the New Testament will by no means precede those who are asleep or who have died. For the Lord himself will do what? Descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Again, you can go back and we study 1 Thessalonians verse 17, that we who are alive, you, to his audience, who are concerned that you missed the second coming, that we who are alive and remain, we shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And he says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. Irregardless of getting into... uh, the timing and, and different patterns there of what will happen first. That All I want you to pay attention to is the fundamental truth is that Jesus is going to come physically and bodily back. I don't have it on the screen, but Acts chapter 1 is a great 
passage you should be familiar with, that right before Jesus ascended, the resurrected Jesus, before he ascended back to heaven, and the disciples are staying there and watch him physically, bodily return upward back into the presence of, of the Father in heaven, the angels that asked the disciples said, why are you standing around looking up? Do you not know that this same Jesus, that's an important phrase, not some nut from Waco, not somebody who's got an internet uh, subscription in their mother's basement and is the Messiah and have got 18,000 followers on YouTube. This same Jesus, physically, body, this same Jesus of Nazareth, in the same way that he ascended, in like manner, he will what? Return. It's very clear. It's very clear. I love the fact that Jesus says, I go to, in that same thought there, about heaven being prepared for believers and he's going to return for us. What a great promise. I like the fact that he says, I go to prepare a place for you. Have you ever gone to visit somebody or stay with somebody? And you've known about this for a while. They've known about it for a while. And you're going to stay with them for three or four days. And uh, you show up to their house, traveled, tired. You go there. And you're ready to just put your luggage down. You want to lay on the bed. You want to go to sleep. And they say, oh, um, we haven't prepared your room for you yet. We've got to get some boxes out of there. And Junior's got his, his tuba in there. And we've got the old fish aquarium in there. And we've got all our books that we're, we're selling on eBay. Can, can you give us an hour or whatever? We need to get this ready. You're like, I'm going to Motel 6. Forget this, right? They did not plan and prepare because your coming was not important to them. What does Jesus say? I'm going to prepare a place for you. And not just any place. You're not going to just stay in some mass warehouse dormitory. He said, in my father's house, there's rooms. And the implication is, there's plenty of room. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. See, that tells me that Jesus anticipates us someday of returning and being with him forever. I love that, that he goes to prepare a place for me. I remember when I had to go live with a relative after my parents divorced. I had my own room. It wasn't necessarily my parents' house. It wasn't it was my aunt and uncle. But I had my own room. My, my place. I didn't have to ask permission to get something out of the refrigerator. Why? Because they made that a home for me. Jesus has prepared a home for his people, for his children. Don't miss that beautiful truth. Notice also is that heaven is not only being prepared, but also notice heaven's pathway. Heaven's pathway. Or did I, did I skip something? Yes, I did. All right, go back. All right, 
got so excited. Heaven is an actual place. Heaven is being prepared. Heaven also is, there it is, if I'd read my handwriting. Heaven is the presence of Jesus. What did Jesus say? Real quick. He says, I will receive you to myself. Don't get preoccupied on the paneling of the mansions. Streets of gold and whether you're going to have your pets there. Don't be focused on that. You know who the most important aspect of heaven is? Jesus said, I'm going to, I'm going to be there. Let me tell you something. An old Puritan said, heaven without Jesus is hell. He said, I'd rather be in hell with Jesus than be in heaven without Jesus. You see, because Jesus, now that just, your brain's got a little confused on that. But what is he saying? The importance of Christ. There is no heaven without the presence of Christ. Amen. Revelation tells us that there will be no need for the moon or the sun because Jesus will be its light. Amen. You see, those things just reflect Jesus himself is the light. And notice last is that heaven's pathway Heaven's pathway is only through Jesus. Verse 5 or verse 4. And where I go, he says, you know, and the way you know. And Thomas said, verse 5, Lord, we do not know where you are going, and how can we know the way? And verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am, the, I'm not a way, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. You see, what Jesus is saying is that Jesus is speaking about the exclusivity of his identity. He's already established, and as you read on, we, won't, we haven't taken time to do it, is established of his, what we call his deity, his God of very God. In other words, there is not multiple avenues. There are not multiple paths. The criteria is not a one sincerity uh, of their belief or their faith. The criteria is in the quality of the one who made the path possible. You see, the thief on the cross could only be in the presence of Christ upon his death because the man in the middle said, you can be there. That's it. That's it. And it's only through Christ. The apostles, they understood this. In Acts chapter 4, verse 12, they said, there is salvation... There is not salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men, given among people, by which we must be saved. Just because you have a constitutional right of religious plurality does not mean the Bible teaches plurality of saviors. There's one Jesus, there's one Savior, there's one way to God. Jesus said heaven has one exclusive pathway into God. So we are strengthened and need to be strengthened in having a faith that has landed upon truth and trust. We're strengthened in where our future is located. And last, be strengthened in where your focus is looking. Be strengthened in where your focus is looking. Let me unpack this just a little bit. In verses 12 through 14, I, I may not have it set up that way to, but let me read to you verses 12 through 14 
and then give me a moment to kind of come through the back door and unpack it in a way I believe the Lord has led me to emphasize these verses. Verse 12, Jesus said, most assuredly, and by the way, prior to that, we didn't take time where Philip asked him the question, we just want to see God, and Jesus said, you see me, you see the Father. He's not saying he and the Father are the identical personages. He's saying uh, that we are one. That's what he's communicating there. But, but verse 12, most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me, believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to my Father. Let me just make a comment about that last phrase because sometimes that's misunderstood. He's not talking about what he's talking about when he says, greater works shall you do. He's talking about the extent of your works, not the kind of your works. You can't have a greater work than what Jesus has done. We're not talking about the kind of works. We're talking about the extent of the works. Think about Jesus' earthly influence in that part of Palestine in his day to, you know, a handful of people, more or less. But think about how the gospel within a generation would be expanded into the thousands. And think about the global reach of the gospel today and Christianity today. So he's saying greater works, not in kind, but in the extent of the works, okay? You shall do when you take my gospel. And so Jesus says, as he continues, greater works you shall do, verse 13, and he says, whatever you ask in my name, I will do, that the Father may be glorified in your Son. And if you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We usually just kind of emphasize the asking part. But let me suggest to you and kind of go back a little bit and remind you of something in the Scriptures, I think, or also in your, your handout, of something Jesus understood as his motive for ministry in John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Just hang with me. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up on the last day. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I'll raise him up at that last day. Go back to verse 38. He says, I've come not to do my own will. And the reason I read that entirety is so you understand the redemptive mission and purpose of what Jesus came to do. But Jesus says, I'm not come to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. That was his priority, right? He was carrying out the mission of the Father. He was, on a, he was a man on a mission. And so when you compare that and understand his motive, and then you compare that to Mark chapter 1 and see the method of how he carried this out, look at Mark chapter 1. Now after John was put in prison, that's John the Baptist, Jesus came to Galilee, and what was his method? Preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. Verse 15. And saying the time is fulfilled. Jesus said that. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is right now. 
is right now. Repent and believe the gospel. Now, time doesn't allow us to do a study on the kingdom of God. But one thing that is important to understand, and we've talked about this before, when we talk about the kingdom of God, think of it in two parts. There is the already, and then there's the not yet. The Bible speaks, as we certainly see Jesus speaking about it, speaks about a present kingdom where Jesus is now currently active, ruling and reigning. We know He's ascended. He's currently ruling and reigning. And the kingdom of God, as the gospel is preached, as the gospel is transforming lives, that the gospel is advancing, that there is an already aspect of the kingdom of God that is now present among His people, among the earth. You get that? But there's also an already, not only is there an already, but there's a not yet. Because if this is the kingdom of God in its totality, in its fulfillment, in its consummation, yikes! And you compare that with what we read earlier about Jesus' coming, and you clearly see that there is a day in which even Zechariah said that this Messiah is going to put his feet upon his return on the Mount of Olives. That has not yet happened. So that's when we say there's a not yet. There's an already, there's a not yet. We're operating in a preview of coming attractions, if you will, as kingdom people. And, but we are kingdom people. And so what I want to do is just in that... Uh, and, and remember Jesus in John 3, I don't, I don't think I have it on the screen, but you're familiar with it. Jesus said that unless you're born again... You can't even see. It's a spiritual entrance, if you will. There's a spiritualness of this kingdom. And he said, you enter this kingdom, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Okay, So we're not talking about electing a political party to rule and reign in Washington. That never works. We're talking about a kingdom... Like Jesus said, so if my kingdom was of this world, meaning if it originated from this world, my followers would have fought for it. Remember Pilate said, you're a king? And Jesus said, uh, actually, uh, I am. You remember that? So what does that have to do back in chapter 14? And here's what I want to say. We read, especially verse 13 and 14, and we, we, we just focus on the asking. And that's a great promise. But don't miss a key component in verse 13 that's related to the asking. Look at verse 13. And Jesus said that, what it, remember, he's talking to his disciples. He didn't want them to be troubled. He's talking about, you know, have faith in God. I'm coming back. There's a future but in the meantime, he says, here's where I want your focus to be. I want you to be strengthened in where your focus is looking. Did I put that third point up there? Or did I skip it? Okay, Teresa's paying attention. That was a test. Y'all are in trouble. I'll preach now. Where is your focus looking? He's saying, look at verse 13. He said, and whatever you ask in my name, I will do it. That the, and here's the key. You need to mark this in your Bible. That the Father may be glorified. That's the point. And you go over to, we won't do it now, but 
You go over to John 17 and that intimate prayer that Jesus had before with, in the presence of his Father. And how many times does he say, I have glorified your name. The glory of God. That's the, that's the motivation of Jesus' life. The method was the announcement of the kingdom of God, which announced the victory and the rule and the reign of God. That was the method. And he's telling his disciples, the agenda is the kingdom. You have authority like, uh, like an attorney. What do they call it? An attorney who has, uh, um, uh, what do they call the term? Um, where they have, uh, there's a term for it. Uh, power of attorney. If you're operating, but somebody's operating as a power of attorney in your name, guess what? They are to do and act in what is your best interest. They can get disbarred if they start freelancing and doing things with your money or your property for their own self-interest, correct? So we have the authority given to us, kingdom authority, given to us by Christ to ask anything in His name that my Father would be glorified. That changes what we ask for, doesn't it? The power of attorney, he may be in Switzerland and you may be in California, but when he signs, he's signing, acting in your interest as if you are there yourself signing off on whatever that deed or whatever that is. So when you ask anything in his name, it's as if you need to ask, can Jesus put his name to what I'm asking. And to what I'm asking is it advancing the glory of God. Now, why does that need to be, why do we get strength in where our focus is looking? Because, guys, most of the time, our focus is on ourselves. Jesus, 24-7's focus was on what? I came to do the will of the Father. And again, look at John 17 sometime. So many times. The disciples have glorified your name. I've glorified your name. I've finished the work. The glory of God, that was the engine driving the ministry and life of Jesus. So if we are to be Jesus followers, if we are to be like Jesus then we should be about our Father's business glorifying our Father. That should be our motive. And the method is the kingdom of God. We advance the kingdom of God. Souls are one, and the kingdom of God, the enemy's lost territory when a person gives their life to Christ. When the gospel is going forth around the world, I'm not talking about territory, no flags are going to be raised. It's the kingdom of God that is establishing and seeing the promise of what Scripture says in the Old Testament that the glory of God will cover the face of the earth. There was a man who 
visited the doctor because he told the doctor that his entire body hurt. From the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he was in pain. Every single place that he touched, great pain came to him. The doctor looked him over and then said, Well, this seems very unusual. I don't, I don't see anything wrong. And he proceeded to ask the man to touch different places on his body, such as his forehead, his nose, his elbow, and knees. And each time the man touched a different place on his body, he cried out in pain, It hurts, it hurts. After a few minutes of going through the process, the doctor deciphered the issue. Sir, the doctor said with a bit of sigh, you have a dislocated finger. (laughs) And here's the point. While it felt like everything was wrong with this man, only... One thing was wrong. His finger was dislocated. And see, a lot of us go through life with a lot of different issues that are painful, disappointing, frustrating. And if we can kind of just get one thing in order, everything seems to have its place. The longest sermon that Jesus ever gave was the Sermon on the Mountain or Sermon on the Mount in uh, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And it's in that wonderful, robust, lengthy message that the very heart of it is found in John or in Matthew 6, verse 33. What does Jesus say in Matthew 6:33? But the one thing I want you to do is what? I want you to focus your eyes. I'm adding my phraseology. Be strengthened in focusing on the kingdom of God. Where are you looking? What are you paying attention to? As Christians, is it just walking through life just blindly? The most concern we have is what we're going to eat for lunch and what's on TV later and what we're going to do with the kids and this, that. That's the way we operate. And naturally, there's priorities and things we have to do. We have to get up, go to work. We've got to pay bills. But Jesus says, I don't want that to be the very core of why you as a follower think that I saved you, that I redeemed you. That I gave my life for you to just be successful at temporary stuff. I saved you and have a purpose for your life that is greater than anything you could imagine. It is being connected and advancing my Father's kingdom on this earth. Living under the kingship of Jesus. Living under the lordship of Jesus. Living and walking in the ethics and the priorities of Jesus. That my day, yes, my work, all of a sudden now, I'm thinking about work as a kingdom man. And that I might answer to a temporal earthly boss, 
But really, as a kingdom man, I'm answering to a much higher authority. That's why I'm there on time. I don't leave early, and I don't steal pencils and take them home. Why? Because I'm a kingdom man. The kingdom of God and the purposes of the kingdom override override everything. How I live as a husband. I'm a kingdom man husband now. I'm a kingdom man father now. Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Repair the finger of that one thing. And what does he say? And all these things shall be added to you. You know what's fascinating? If you go back and read what's previous to that, there's at least five or six different places that the whole context of what he said in, in Matthew 6.33, go back and read it how many times he says, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry, do not worry. We'll add it to our phrase this morning. Do not be troubled, do not be troubled, do not be troubled. Don't be troubled by what you're going to eat. Don't be troubled by what you're going to wear. I mean, it, all through there. And then he says, but seek first the kingdom of God. Don't chase after these things. Get your focus looking to the kingdom of God. Several people have attributed the quote of when this one life is passed, only that done for Christ will last. You know, you've heard it said many times, people on their deathbed never just said, honey, I wish I'd taken that overtime. Something about the brevity and the conclusion of life, it narrows down where our priorities have been. And as we get older, you know what we have a tendency and anxiousness to do? Make up for lost time. And some of that may be important and good. Reconcile, forgive, all those things. Never too late to do the right thing. But it's never too late to focus on where my life is looking. You hear me? I quote this scripture all the time. I'm hesitant to do it, but it's just such a powerful principle, Sherry. Paul, Philippians 1.12, he's in jail. Doesn't want to be in jail. House arrest, still jail. He doesn't want to be there. It's not what he's wanting to do. He wants to be out apostolizing. Not apostatizing. Apostolizing is a difference. <laughs> and he says, to paraphrase, the things that have happened to me actually have advanced the purposes of God. Philippians 1.12 The things that have happened to me in jail, hardship, people talking bad about me. He says, you know what? I'm going to put my kingdom of God lenses on. Oh. You see, Joseph, when he had that moment at the end of Genesis before his brothers, you know what he did? He went away and he was broken and then all of a sudden... 
He put his kingdom of God lenses on and said, Oh, what you meant for evil, the kingdom of God had a bigger agenda and a purpose. Why does that strengthen me? Because man, if I'm just, if I'm living life with spiritual myopia, how many of you know what being myopic is? I know Lisa does. It's when you're nearsighted. I'm myopic. I don't need glasses to read. I can see great in front of me. Y'all look a little fuzzy. Spiritual myopia is where all we see is just what's in front of us. Go to work. Pay the bills. God wants you to put on the glasses of the kingdom and see and focus and get into looking and draw strength, not in the stuff you've collected, the souvenirs you're collecting as we spin around the sun. I am spiritually strengthened when my personal priorities of life are in sync with Jesus' kingdom purposes. You see, when I'm flowing in the will and the purpose of God, there's great joy. Doesn't mean I'm immune from problems. There's great joy and fulfillment. I draw strength in doing the will of God. When my priorities are Jesus' priorities. And Jesus' priorities was glorifying God, seeing the kingdom of God advanced.